Welcome to The Old Way, a Deepwater Initiative podcast series hosted by myself, Chantal Noah Forbes. This podcast will feature artists, academics, and educators whose work highlights the present ecological significance of Indigenous traditions, customs, and former ways of life. Today we'll be joined by Laura Machetti, a PhD candidate in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Laura is an astrologer, diviner, writer, and teacher in the San Francisco Bay Area. Today we'll be discussing Laura's dissertation research with her, which is titled Divining Ecology, the Sami Shaman Drum. An abstract from her dissertation reads, The Sami people are an indigenous community who have lived in the circumpolar region of Eurasia for millennia. Before forced Christianization, Sami culture was anchored in a shamanic worldview that was deeply connected to and influenced by the natural environment of the Arctic. One especially unique feature of this pre-Christian tradition is the Sami shaman drum. Used for everything from divination to ritualized trance, the drum has been an integral part of Sami culture, both as a memory of the challenges faced during times of colonization and as a marker of their indigenous spiritual identity. By exploring the symbology and cultural context of a single shaman drum from the 17th century, Laura shows how the deep relationship that exists between the Sami shaman and the natural world can affect healing on a cultural and global scale. So, Laura, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Your (laughs) dissertation is entitled Divining Ecology, the Sami Shaman Drum. I'd like to start right off the bat by asking, what was your understanding of a shamanic worldview before undertaking this research? And how has your research in Sampi evolved that understanding? Um, I, you know, I like to think that I had a pretty decent understanding of the shamanic worldview prior to starting this dissertation. Um, it was definitely not comprehensive, but it wasn't completely wrong. Um, and I think having come from, you know, I got my master's degree in comparative mythology. And so I, I had read Eliada's shamanism um, and, you know, really had a kind of anthropological view on the matter. Um, and I knew that there was a bit more to it in terms of contemporary shamanism and, you know, the kind of wide sort of base that that shamanism comes from in life um, with healing. And, um, you know, of course, I've studied a bit of sort of psychedelic um, medicine and journeys in that regard, especially in terms of um, how it's being sort of used in psychotherapy now. And so all of these things kind of went into what I would have thought, you know, oh, that's all sort of shamanic in nature. Um, And I think that, you know, all of that is true. And, and yet there's this, this other part of it that I have come to really get a chance to see and, and get close to throughout the course of this research. Um, and I would say sort of 
two things about that. The first is that even though I recognized that shamanism was something, um, you know, that uh, sort of LSD psychotherapist, you could kind of say maybe they're doing some form of shamanism. Um, and, you know, there's neo-pagans who are doing, you know, shamanic rituals with drums and such. Even though I recognize those things as real and had, you know, experienced them or come in contact with them, I still really thought that shamanism was sort of like the activity of the other. Um, and there was this kind of anthropological, like, you know, we are these people and they are those people and only those people do shamanism. And although, and we'll talk about this, I assume at some point in this um, interview, although there's a, a way in which shamanism is very much kind of insulated and protected within the the bigger cultural container that it, you know, comes from in all of the various cultures in the world that we could call shamanic, shamanism is actually something that's deeply inside, like all of us as humans. Um, and, and it's also not a big deal. <laughs> I think I really thought of it as a big deal, right? Like the shaman of the community was this huge figure, um, unapproachable. Uh, shamanism itself was this very mysterious sort of act of, of ritual and sacredness. And, and really, the shaman is, is such a integral and centered and grounded part of, of any culture, of any worldview. And so I've, it's come to be demystified, but in that it's become more important, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yes, that, that does. And you, you said you'd studied mythology previously, and at the moment you're a PhD candidate at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Yes. In the Department of Philosophy, Cosmology and Consciousness. And I'd just like to ask you, what do you view as the ultimate learning objective for students in this department? And how did that play into the evolution of your understanding of the role of shamanism within indigenous cultures? And then as you were touching on, um, even within our own Western culture. Right. Um, I think that the ultimate learning objective or goal for people in PCC, um, it's funny, on the website or, you know, in our kind of official documents, our um, student learning objectives or SLO are sort of like, um, you know, become world leaders in order to like draw attention to the sort of potential ways in which worldview can, you know, influence um the decisions that people are making and, and, and how those decisions have long-term consequences for other humans, for the natural environment, for the more than human world, et cetera. So I think that that's kind of the official, like what we're supposed to be doing there. And I think that what I have experienced um, as the kind of learning objective, having gone through the program, having been a TA in the program um, for way too long now, <laughs> I think that what I've experienced is that we learn and get to experience our own kind of personal transformation after having come in contact with, you know, a ridiculous amount of philosophy from all over the world and a ridiculous amount of cosmology from different times and places, all the while kind of studying the underlying tones of, um, you know, uh, transpersonal psychology uh, and, and, you know, where consciousness fits into that. And by doing that, we end up coming into our own sort of transformative process. And that, to me, I think is what the real ultimate goal is um, of a PCC student, to undergo your own personal transformation such that something like becoming a leader or being able to 
share your voice um, in such a way as to make a positive difference in the world as possible. So that's kind of, you know, what I think the big PCC um, goal is. For me, um, this definitely was a huge part of, of my journey in the sense that when I started the program, and, you know, I, when you start a PhD program, you have to kind of tell them, like, this is what my research is, and this is why you would be the perfect person to advise me, and this is what I want to do. And so I, I had that plan. And then after having gone through PCC and going through the personal transformation that inevitably occurred, that plan completely went out the window and I changed. And so what ended up happening was that this kind of dissertation topic really sort of opened up to me through my own personal transformation. Um, and so I wouldn't have even thought about the role of shamanism in indigenous cultures if it hadn't been for the experience, the successful experience of that sort of PCC um, transformative process wherein I got a chance to really see what was important to me. It's very easy, especially as an academic, to say, you know, this is what I'm kind of interested in, so this is what I research, and then you get pegged into that, and it's like, you're the person who researches A or B. Um, and I had really found myself kind of locked into that, and it really took this experience through our program to give me the kind of confidence, to give me the excitement about the world, um, to kind of make this jump and say, actually, no, I know what I need to write about, and it's not what I had planned, but rather it's this sort of indigenous community and its magic and shamanism and history. Um, so I think that the PCC sort of learning objective absolutely came through for me, but maybe not in an expected way. <laughs> yeah, well, I can totally relate to that because I can actually say that I wouldn't have thought to think about the role of shamanism in indigenous cultures if it weren't through the questions that the program uh, posed to me. So I find that that really interesting. Mm -hmm. I'd like to uh, sort of dig a bit deeper now into your own personal relationship to this specific research. And I'd like to ask, what was or is your personal connection to the Sami as a living indigenous tradition and also to the geographic region and the land? Right. Um, well, so officially speaking, I have um, no sort of um, Sami or in indigenous heritage, technically speaking. Um, my family ancestors are Jewish and then um, Baltic. I have Lithuanian or th that's actually the same. My Jewish family comes from Lithuania. And so I do have sort of deep roots in the far north. Um, and of course, you know, once you're in the Baltics, you kind of get into Finland territory. There's a lot of intermingling of cultures there. They're not quite that far apart. Um, Russia to the east and then Sotmi and the sort of indigenous lands of the Arctic to the north. Um, and so I have a kind of a route near that part of the world. Um, and it was actually, you know, the first time I went to Norway, I was on my way to Latvia, which is a Baltic country. And so there's been a lot of synchronicities just sort of in the spirit world um, that have connected that part of my ancestry to um, to Scandinavia, which ultimately would be where I ended up doing my research. But I have no official um, sort of previous to this dissertation. I had really no experience with the Sami people. I definitely had never been to the Arctic. Um, and it was kind of happenstance. It wasn't really happenstance. There's a lot of curated kind of effort and research that brought me to that, to, to Sotmi and to the Sami people. But, but it, there was no, there was nothing external that kind of 
no one said, oh, hey, you know, you should go and study the Sami people. Or I didn't meet anybody that kind of triggered that for me. It was just this sort of research path that opened up. And um, ultimately, the really the only thing that brought me there was the drum itself, which as I go on through my dissertation to kind of show, the drum is actually just like a mini sought me. <laughs> and so if you kind of can find the drum, the drum will kind of bring you into the people, into the land, into the territory. And that's kind of the drum's purpose is to be all encompassing of, of everything cultural and spiritual and environmental and ecological about their culture is all right there in the drum. And so the drum is actually what led me there. Ironically, um, I was researching kind of old um, magical practices uh, and how they relate to ecology and the drum showed up in my research and I just sort of followed it. Um, at this point now, um, my personal connection is, you know, I've been traveling there um, over the course of the last four years off and on. I have kids, so I can't, I've never been able to go and live there, but I go for chunks of time, multiple times a year. And I have, I, the only way to really describe it is like, I have fallen in love. Um, I've fallen in love with the land. I've fallen in love with the community. I've made some really great friends there. And so I've had an opportunity to just see a, a culture as both a kind of indigenous culture that is different from me, but also just to make friends and to find people who I'm aligned with and to know other moms who we can complain about, you know, life with our sort of 10 year olds. I mean, where there's just so many alignments and things that are the same across borders, um, but then also a chance to kind of learn from somebody who who is different and who has very different, but equally as pressing needs or challenges in their life, um, both on account of where they live and on account of their indigenous identity. And so it's been this wonderful kind of personal growth for me um, to be able to to extend that kind of circle of mine um, to this place that is beautiful and cold <laughs> and, and you know, sort of rich. And I think the Arctic, especially in Scandinavia, um, that's the only one I can speak to because I've never been to Greenland or Alaska. Um, it has a magic to it, the cold and the aurora and the sort of sparkly snow that fills the air. I mean, there's just something so inspiring about it and so um i feel really lucky to to have had this kind of unfold the way that it did um i think that's really the only way i can kind of describe it is like i totally fell in love and i am so lucky that it ended up happening this way because i don't know if that answers the question kind of does <laughs> <laughs> yes it did thank you very much i like the way that you sort of describe the drum as a almost a symbolic representation of the Sami cosmology. And I, I know in previous conversations with you, you've sort of told me that there was a time where you were looking to research multiple drums across multiple cultures. So I'd like to ask, how did you settle on the Sami drum? And then there's also, it's not only the Sami drum, I believe that you're focusing on a, a particular drum that has a, a recorded history and, and so how did you how did you narrow down to a much more specific symbol e even within this culture right uh, not easily it was very 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 difficult to narrow down it felt um, in some ways kind of like suffocating my creative energies even though it was absolutely the right thing to do but um so just to, to clarify, I wasn't researching other drums. I was looking at divination systems around the world. Um, the the sort of divination systems, you know, like 
in contemporary culture, we think of them like the tarot cards or, um, you know, some people are, are savvy and know what the I Ching is and using it as an oracle. Um, but so I was looking at there's I mean, and there's divination systems all over the world. In West Africa, they divine with a, a spider in a hole. They like put cards on top of the hole. <laughs> and when the spider crawls out of the hole, it moves stuff around. And then that the shaman reads and can give an answer to somebody about, you know, for example, why they're sick or what their mother needs to do in order to, um, you know, gain some wealth. And so so there's divination systems of varying sorts all over the world. Um, and most of them are related to what's readily available in the natural environment. Um, and so that was sort of where my thinking started was, well, what does this mean for ecology and sustainability? Um, and the drum itself is the only drum that's used, the Sami shaman drum is the only one that's used for divination. There are shaman drums all over the world and people do in fact use them to kind of go into a trance or a meditation. And in, in that case, some people may come up with a kind of, um, you know, sort of oracle-like answer to a question. But the way that the Sami drum is used is completely unique to the Sami people. Um, <clears throat> and so it was that that really brought me in was that it was a divination system and it also happened to be a shaman drum. Um, so I think that, you know, what was really hard is that, you know, I came to my, as I told you previously, I had this sort of transformative experience and I said, oh, this is what I must write about. This is this sort of relationship between divination and ecology. And in order to do that, I'm going to show how every culture in the world has divination and how that divination relates to their natural environment. And so I went to my dissertation um, committee and I said, look, I want to do these, you know, four or five cultures. And they kind of, in in the most kind way kind of laughed and said no way that's too much that's like your life's work pick a single place and I thought like there's no way I can do that I need to be able to sort of show evidence across the board otherwise my research won't be taken seriously yada yada all of the sort of wonderful idealistic things that a, a dissertation person thinks in the very early stages um and you know essentially it was really the the work of my committee kind of forcing me to just make it smaller. And so, so I finally caved and said, okay, I'll do, I'll do the Sami people and I'll do their drum. It's perfect. Um, the Arctic is going through major environmental changes right now and really needs some attention. So fine, I'll do the Sami drum. And then I said, but I'm doing four different drums. <laughs> and so I was going to analyze four different drums because each of the drums has their own sort of symbolic um, gestalt, if you could, you know, if you could kind of imagine that where they sort of represent a, a certain sentiment. Um, and even that proved to be too much. And so when I was still in proposal stage, I was still writing about four drums. And then I started actually writing my dissertation. And I started writing about this particular drum that I ended up focusing on. And I realized my entire dissertation was right there. And that if I was going to do this any justice, I needed to do everything about one particular drum. And I also ended up having this sort of oddly personal connection to the particular drum. Um, visually, it looks um, really unique compared to the majority of the other historical drums that we, that survived, you know, what we call the kind of the religious encounter, the time when um, the colonial powers came into the Arctic in the 17th century. And, um, you know, they didn't even they didn't quite outlaw the shamanic practice because they didn't really consider the Sami people sort of human enough to follow rules. But they just took their drums and, you know, burned them. And a lot of shamans were killed in the process. And, um, 
you know, there was sort of a really brutal period of time, essentially. Um, and so, so all of that kind of sat in this one particular drum that I ended up choosing. Um, and it just seemed so clear that I needed to give it all of my attention. Um, but anyway, so this particular drum looks a little bit differently than the other ones. Um, if you've never seen a Sami drum, you'll have to kind of just, you know, you could do a Google image search. Um, they are decorated on top with these beautiful, beautiful symbols and paintings. Um, and the images themselves are very like stick figure-y. They're not super, um, detailed, but but the effect of them all being together on a drum surface is just striking. It was at least to me, I, I was immediately taken by them. Um, and so a lot of the drums kind of have um, symbols in concentric circles. Some of them have layers and, you know, there's like horizontal lines that divide the shaman drum um, in accordance with the views of Sami cosmology, the differing layers of the universe and of the world. Um, and so this particular drum is divided into five layers, which most are not. It doesn't have a ton of animals on them. It has mostly anthropic figures, whereas the other drums often have just an abundance of animals, like fish and birds and reindeer and moose and foxes. This one just has a reindeer on it as far as animals go. So everything about this drum is, is unique and special. And um, ultimately, I think the reason why I really settled on it is because um, is because of its historical significance. And that is that the shaman who owned this drum, his name was Anders Paulsen, and he lived, um, or he was from Utsjoki, which is a, a small town in the very, 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 very north of Finland. Um, he was a reindeer herder, so he kind of hung out in this territory called Varanger, which is a sort of peninsula, um, easternmost part of Norway at the very, very top, kind of near the coast. Um, and so, you know, he sort of took this territory and would sort of herd his reindeers through there. Um, but he was arrested, actually, when he was 100 years old and, um, you know, for charges of witchcraft, essentially. And he was put on trial. And the court records are one of the most sort of amazing historical documents, I think, in terms of um, religious persecution of indigenous communities. And this was specifically within the context of the European witch hunts of the um, 16th and 17th centuries. And so we have this detailed court records, pages and pages and pages of everything that was going on during his trial. And the things that come to light about Sami shamanism at the time, about Anders Paulson's practice, about the actual symbols on the drum, um, all of this is, is detailed, you know, in a kind of um, dubious, but still like active piece of evidence. And so for me, writing a dissertation about something like, you know, divination and shamanism, I really felt like I needed to be able to ground in something tangible something historical so that it wasn't just me saying you know well I think the symbol of the moon means this and then disambiguating from there um it was really critical to be able to take the shaman's voice into my work um and so I go through all of that and and I think that those are the sorts of ways in which you know it started out so big and ultimately it just kind of funneled down into this like single man um <laughs> this man whose life was really um significant it came at a really significant time and you know ultimately this sort of tragic moment in his life you know has sort of preserved historically speaking um a worldview that we can't really access um in quite the same way anymore so 
those were all of the things that went into choosing not just the Sami drum, but this single one that I ended up picking. Yeah, that... I really, I mean, I, I like the idea of centering in um, on a historical moment and also particular historical records. So much of Indigenous culture is inaccessible to us, um, you know, sort of right. pre-Christianized Indigenous culture. And so it's, I think that when you find such a record, um, you know, it's almost incumbent upon us to bring that record to life particularly mm -hmm. in a philosophy of religion degree when we aren't um, core ethnographers or anthropologists by right. trade, but we'd like to make use of anthropological data mm -hmm. in, in order to tell a story, in order to re-enliven a particular cosmology. So with that in mind, I'd, I'd just like to go back to this whole concept of divining ecology. Mm -hmm. which is, you know, the first two words of your dissertation. And mm -hmm. if you could just expound a little bit for us, like what what does divining ecology mean to you? And if you could just sort of, you, you narrow it in on this drum, but just sort of pull it back out and talk to some of those beliefs that you have about the fact that, that every culture um, has various tools that allow them to... Uh, divine ecology and with ecology in different ways mm -hmm. um yeah so you know the term is sort of twofold um there's there's one sense in which what i really wanted to do was ask the question like what is ecology and so when you're divining something you're finding an answer through non-traditional means of research right um you're not going out into the field and counting the number of salmon that exist in a particular creek year after year season after season you're really kind of looking at a more holistic view of what's happening in the natural environment. If you're in a shamanic culture, right, you are never just counting salmon, you're counting salmon, you're, or you're, you know, observing the amount of salmon in a river while also listening to the birds and being able to discern which ones are making noise and whether their noise signifies one thing or another. And you're also at the same time paying attention to the color of the water and the color of the sky and the temperature. I mean, you know, what ecology is this huge thing. And in the Western world, we tend to really kind of pinpoint, you know, oh, the polar bear is starving. And oh, there's not enough fish in this sea, instead of really looking from a gigantically huge perspective at the whole ecosystem. And that's not to say there aren't researchers who are doing that, of course, um, I'm in full favor of the ecological and environmental movement proceeding, as long as they include indigenous voices. <laughs> but, but the point is that, it's really easy for us in the modern world to get very narrow and um, divination systems are really decidedly not narrow. They include every possible part of life. They include all potential realities. Um, every possible answer to a question is included in every single question that comes to a diviner. And so that was sort of what I was trying to get at was if we are going to divine ecology, we're going to look at a way through a way bigger lens at all of the potential issues that are happening in the natural environment. And from there, we have a bigger repertoire to draw on in terms of where our answers might be. Um, and so, you know, I think, for example, I don't know if you um, had kind of followed the the sort of restoration of the natural environment within Yellowstone that happened when they reintroduced wolves. Um, 
And right, like it was sort of in, in that case, they kind of were doing like a divination. Like what happens if we put wolves here? <laughs> you know, it, there's no way they could have foreseen all of the potential, all of the benefits that ended up happening in terms of, um, you know, the predators kind of, um, I, I definitely can't go into it right now. I don't have an, enough of the information, but essentially the wolves, you know, really ended up affecting every part of Yellowstone from the riverbeds being better managed by beavers um, to, you know, sort of population management of pests and vermin, et cetera. And so by just kind of throwing one thing in an ecosystem, you can change sort of everything about it. And those are the sorts of things that happen when you approach from a, I don't really know perspective. And I think divination is beautiful in that we come into divination with a, I don't really know attitude. And that allows us to have a lot more flexibility in where the possible answers might lie. So that's sort of phase one of, of what the idea is, is how can we look at ecology from a broader lens that includes things that maybe we're not currently thinking about. The other side of this was, and this kind of came from the actual research, was that by, by doing sort of divination, um, especially within the context of the natural world, so for example, the West African spider divination, what you end up sort of doing in that state is kind of imbuing that spider, right, with a divine power. Um, if you are trusting the spider to come out of the hole, um, and again, within West African culture, you know, sort of chance is, is, a, huge, um, is a huge part. And so, you know, one could kind of argue that, oh, it's just chance. But within West African culture, chance itself is divine. And so when you are looking to the natural environment, to provide answers about really critical human things like somebody's health or um, somebody's well-being who isn't in the same village as you and you don't have a telephone to, to call them and ask them. When you're kind of consulting the natural world for answers about those things, you are essentially making the natural world divine in that act. And so that was the other kind of part of divining ecology was that it was an act of making something divine by asking it a question and trusting that it has enough sentience, um, enough sort of care to actually give you an answer that's going to be helpful in a potential time of distress. And so that was sort of the other side is that it's not just a kind of way of approaching ecology, but it's a way of actually making or recognizing, you know, right, what is already a sort of sacred natural world. Um, and again, I think that you know, currently where we are right now globally with our environmental crisis, it's really important that we start to recognize the sacredness of the natural world. Um, presumably, we don't know what humans will do. We always surprise ourselves. But presumably, if there's a sacred relationship with the natural world, there's going to be better care taken of it. Um, and that's sort of the critical feature and the juncture that we're at right now. And it's also where indigenous communities come from, because although there are exceptions to the rule, by and large, indigenous communities are extremely um, good caretakers of the natural environment that they inhabit. And that caretaking is almost always related to a really deep relationship with the divinity of that natural environment. So I think that's about, that's all within just those two words. <laughs> yeah. Well, and thank you for painting a really holistic picture for us. I I just want to um, play devil's advocate here in, in asking you this next question. So I like yeah. the way you, you laid it out first with ecology and then, um, in, in you know, re-infusing the divine 
uh, back mm-hmm. into nature. Now, I want to pick up on the fact that a lot of people in the West have recognized that we need to treat the environment as sacred and a whole sort of neo-shamanic tradition has developed around this and, and we've started to to pick up traditional rituals and tools in order to find our own sacred relationship with the environment. And and one of these very popular tools has become the drum in, right. in a very non-contextual way, just sort of as a, a blanket um, shamanic instrument for ritual mm-hmm. use. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, if people who are coming to an environment looking to reform a sacred relationship with the natural world, but actually not necessarily being attached to that first part, being the ecology, how how do we not appropriate or misappropriate those tools and not um, commercialize them in a, in a negative sense, but still find our way back emotionally and spiritually to that place that you're talking about? Right. Um, you know, I think you know, I've asked a lot of the, the shamans that I've had an opportunity um, to, to interview or to interact with. I've asked them sort of similar questions. Um, and by and large, I, I mean, the other thing is a lot of these, at least a handful of them, um, teach workshops, right, to people to to kind of learn and connect with um, with the natural world, essentially. In some cases, some of the shamans teach only to Sami people, and they teach traditional Sami um, shamanism. And then there are cases where they kind of, you know, remove a lot of the very specific cultural aspects of it and teach a kind of, right, like self-improvement, pay attention to the natural world, recognize, you know, sort of the cycles of nature. And they'll teach that in a kind of um, more culturally neutral sphere to whoever whoever wants to learn um i think and and by and large though regardless of of what their preferences are in terms of who their audience is and what information they disseminate they've all said we need shamanism (laughs) like it's important and so it's great that people want to do this it is a beautiful worldview it's absolutely critical to, I think, our sort of unfolding and flourishing as a population. Um, and it really is just about honoring culture and, and understanding what constitutes kind of creating your own worldview in which you can take these elements of shamanic cultures, like recognizing the significance of the natural world, um, being aware of the natural world that you live in. Um, and so knowing, right, the birds that are in your backyard, um, having a relationship with the crows that, you know, live near your trash cans, whatever, whatever it happens to be. Um, you, you know, we, we really need to kind of learn how to embed ourselves within the natural world. And that's essentially what shamanism teaches. And so I think that ultimately it's, it's a good thing that people are interested. Um, now with, as with all things in Western culture, and like I was saying earlier, like we always seem to mess things up as humans. And so we either overindulge or, um, or we just become kind of thoughtless. And so I think that it's really critical to pay attention to the cultural connections, to recognize the difference in cultures, to recognize that, I mean, even the term shamanism is problematic, but it's become the norm even amongst indigenous communities 
um, to be able to kind of align with other indigenous communities that may have a shamanic worldview. It's become a catch-all, but technically speaking, it refers to a specific tribe in uh, Siberia. And so, you know, there's there's so many layers of, of trouble that you get into when it comes to engaging with this material. But I think that it just requires care, consideration, effort. It's just like what we're seeing with um, the sort of, you know, gender today where you just have to care and be careful and say they or them or ask, you know, what's your preferred pronoun? And so as long as you can just slow down and ask questions of the people who are teaching you or do your research and figure out, you know, the kind of cultural sensitivities of this culture that maybe you're, you know, trying to kind of learn from their shamanic um, system, you know, I think that those are some of the ways that we can navigate. Um, in terms of my research, what I've had to come into contact with is, you know, and it's so great that Sami people, because they, you know, live in what are some of the most progressive and um, functional governments in the world being, you know, Swedish, Norwegian, and Finnish, and in certain cases, um, Russian. But those are the three, you know, the populations of those three countries are, are huge in terms of the Sami people. And so they're citizens of, of these countries. And so they have got resources, which is something a lot of indigenous communities around the world do not have. So the Sami people have, I think, found themselves in a really great position to be able to kind of help lead indigenous rights movements because, um, they're highly educated. They are not fighting. I mean, currently there, are, you know, there's definitely some climate issues that are going on, but they're by no means struggling in the way that um, indigenous communities where, you know, actual genocide is still rampant in the world. Um, the Sami people don't have those issues. So they have a little bit more freedom to kind of rally and lead the way. Um, and so one of the things that they've been working on as of late is trying to figure out who even gets to research the Sami people and what to do with that research. Um, because so many times, especially in, in um, the historical kind of period, anthropologists would come in, they would, you know, study the sort of exotic Sami people, and then they would take all of the research that they did and disseminate it to a Western um, academic elite audience. And so the Sami people didn't even get to know any of the stuff that was being said about them. They didn't get a voice in it. And so, you know, nowadays there's been sort of efforts underway to see like what are proper practices. We see some of this in Canada as well with some of the um, First Nations tribes there. Um, and one of the things is, you know, giving back to the community. And so I think that, you know, being able to kind of engage with the community is one thing, but also giving back to it um, is another thing. And so, I think there are definitely ways in which modern Western people can engage with the material, but it requires slowness. It requires a lot of thoughtfulness. It requires being kind of like overly cautious, which is better than just like bumbling about and not caring. I've, I've asked so many times of, of, of the Sami people that I've interacted with, like, can, can I do this? Is this, am I allowed to even be doing this? And, I struggled a lot for the first year or two of my dissertation with um, feeling like I just didn't have a place there. And it was really only insofar as continuously asking, like, do I have this right? Is this thought correct? Or figuring out ways to say things which, you know, admit my kind of um, my naivety in these certain circumstances. 
these are the ways that I've been able to kind of navigate through. And I think that when it comes to actual practice of something like a shamanic sort of experience, but that's exactly what you have to do in those cases as well, is just communicate with your teachers, figure out who they learned from, figure out what their lineage is and how they interacted with or gave back to the communities where they got this information from. So as long as there's just a constant awareness of and sort of um, honoring of those traditions, then I, I think it's a good thing that people want to learn how to take care of themselves in a holistic way and align themselves with nature. That is always a good thing. Um, but, and, and, and the other thing that I really want to kind of point out is it's really easy to, um, you know, to kind of over-idealize shamans, but like even within indigenous cultures, there have been shamans that probably weren't great. And so we also have to just sort of demystify it and, you know, like, just like there are contemporary people who say they're shamans, like, you know, there have been frauds in all cultures, in all parts of the world. And usually they're in a smaller network, so they can be kind of ostracized and the system would take care of itself in that way. We don't have that. There's a lot of um, uh, an anonymity, especially when it comes to things like Instagram and um, and social media. People can kind of get away with, with being you know, more of these like plastic shamans or, or what have you, um, whereas they wouldn't have in a small tight knit community. But but those people are always going to exist. And I don't think we need to let the the loud and disrespectful totally taint what is, I think, ultimately a, a positive kind of um, movement. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. And I you know, it sort of reminds me of um, the increasing academic trend to encourage people to look towards indigenous research methodologies, which is, again, about a worldview and approach, not about right. necessarily your own sort of ethnicity. And and so this leads me to my last question, um, which is about, in some ways, um, what is indigeneity and, and who is indigenous? I mean, we started this podcast with you talking a little bit about your own heritage. And if, if I look at, you know, where you are today from where your ancestry comes from, there's a huge gap um, oh, yeah. <laughs> in, in timeline and culture, perhaps even in religious expression and practice. And so, you know, th this is actually more a question for people that, come from different places so you know I come from Europe and the Middle East and people that have mixed ethnicity who today are broadly Caucasian or European mm -hmm. and so how do how do we connect to our distant indigenous pasts even if we don't know what those are and and how do you see in indigeneity not only as an ethnicity, but as something we should all be moving towards in terms of it being um, a worldview. Right. Um, well, you know, there's there's multiple layers of that. And I think I'll just sort of speak to two. Um, and the first one is that I really think it's important to, to pay attention to your ancestry. Um, and I don't necessarily think that means that you, I mean, I, I'm a full full support of, of world travel. I think, you know, whatever you've got to do to make yourself feel like it's okay to travel is, the, you know, whether it be carbon offsetting or 
not driving a car or or anything, I do think it's important to get out and connect. Um, but I also don't necessarily think that getting in touch with your, you know, sort of your European roots means going and moving to, right, for my in my example, Lithuania for a year. Um, but I will say that my experience in the Baltics was hugely sort of awakening to this entire part of me that I am disconnected from and that I have had no way of connecting with. I was born in, you know, like the middle of like urban L.A. And that was my entire life until I was, you know, 20. Um, so I had no way of connecting to to these roots that sort of made me. Um, and so I do think there's something to be said for travel. But I also don't think we have to. I think that you can, you know, connect with your family. It's like it's so easy to forget about the people who have those direct links for us, especially because family can be, you know, challenging and, and maybe they voted for Trump or, or who knows what it is. But but sometimes we don't go straight there. But we literally have a direct link to our ancestors through our parents, our aunts, our grandparents, um, cousins. In some cases, especially in um, our world, these people still live. I still have family who live in Ireland who have been there for, you know, many generations. Um, I have family in Italy who've lived there for for just so long. And, you know, connecting to those is a way of reaching our ancestors um, and that indigenous part of us. Um, it's not exotic. It's not a kind of, you know, way of like becoming an anointed um, sort of, you know, druid, like, but I can still reach out to my, my grandmother's aunt and get deep sort of connection to the land of Ireland and to the food and the people and the spirit. Um, and so, you know, just to kind of really sort of say, like, we have family, we all, we all came from somewhere. And so doing what you can to kind of access that, I think, is a really important part of the process. It is also a very indigenous spirited and a very shamanically inspired spirited way of, of going about things. Um, they would always connect with and care about their ancestors and their family. And it's very easy in the West to get disconnected from that um, because we feel like we have options, right? We feel like we have a whole network and a social network and a work network and a friend network and indigenous communities are a little more insular. You've got what you've got and you work with that. <laughs> so I think really kind of bringing in that kind of family and ancestor line um, is one of the, the first steps. Um, but I think that, you know, <clears throat> the other part of it is also to really accept where you live. Um, and I think that that's hard for a lot of people. It's hard for me. I, if I find every day that I'm not in the Arctic a challenge. <laughs> and so, you know, it's hard for me to, to think like, you know, this is where I am placed and this is the natural world in which I am embedded and I need to learn about it. And so I think that, you know, one of the most sort of indigenous spirited things we can do is just nurture the land that we live in. Um, shop locally. Be aware of, like I was saying, the birds that live in your backyard. Um, know the sort of cycles of the world in which you're a part. Um, understand the plants. Learn the healing properties of of plants that are around you. I mean, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is granted of one of the, <clears throat> I don't want to say more, but it's quite a lovely sort of urban environment. But, you know, in any direction, a couple of hours, I've got a wealth of natural environments available to me. And each of them has their own really diverse set of um, plant medicines, of um, fauna and sort of flora that I could relate to in a sort of you know, shamanic sort of honoring of nature way. Um, 
And so I really think that that's the other side of this is just like, what do you have available to you? Um, and that's kind of also like what the point of divination and, and divining ecology is, is that the shamans didn't use things that were hard to find in many ways. Like they just took what was in the natural environment well, like that spider and used it to kind of answer their questions and to guide their thoughts and their process. Um, you don't have to seek out medicines or tools or an ancestral connection from something far away from you. And in fact, sometimes when you do that, you've already kind of stepped out of that mindset. Um, so I think really just bringing it back to what is at hand, your mom, your dad, your aunt, your uncle, your grandparents, whoever it is that raised you, um, and then the natural environment that is, you know, close to you. And some people have to travel, you know, a couple of hours to get into a natural environment. Um, you know, in L.A., it was a, a totally different thing. I didn't have access to a lot of nature there. We had the ocean and we had the desert and that was it. But you can be darn sure that I knew those two places very well. Um, and I understood the wisdom in them and I pondered their magic. Um and so I think that's the best we can do. Uh, and I think that's the most indigenous thing we can do. Um, use everything, use what's available, don't waste, um, and just kind of engage. And it's not even about love. I think it's about love. I think it's about loving the, the environment. I think it's about loving people, loving the animals, but it doesn't have to be about that. It's about showing a respect for, right? And kind of um, uh, giving a sort of, a personhood, a, a sort of sentience to these other aspects of the natural world. And you don't have to be in the Arctic or in the Amazon to do that. You can do it right out front of your door. So <clears throat> that I think is, is what it means to really kind of carry that indigenous spirit through for people like us who, um, you know, for whatever reason, we ended up, you know, not born into these rich traditions. Um, and that has given us both a kind of a longing, but also a, a a strength um in that we've we've you know we've been free from some of the um discrimination and suffering that a lot of indigenous communities have so it's mm -hmm. twofold we've lost something but we've also gained something um in that <clears throat> well thank you laura i think that's a very beautiful and appropriate response and you know, <laughs> I, I think it sort of really seals our, our conversation um now i know that part of your work well, not even necessarily part of your formal work, but part of your cultural engagement with your research subject has been your growing love and pleasure for the music. And mm -hmm. so uh, in closing, I'd just like you uh, to introduce the audience uh, to a song that we're going to play at the end of the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, I, 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 there's a quick story about that song, and then I'm going to read uh, just sort of like the initial, um, the, the first sort of uh, stanza of it um, translated into English for you. Um, but so this particular song is um, by uh, Sami artist Mari Boyne. Um, her biography is really wonderful. She, you know, grew up in a, a, the Sami culture when you know, her parents did not speak Sami. They were not supportive of, of you know, kind of embodying the culture the way that it is now. Um, it was very much, there was so much discrimination in the um, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries um, that a lot of Sami just, just cut it off and they just became very good Swedes and very good Norwegians and very good Christians. Um, and they really kind of detached from that part of themselves. And it's been 
the, you know, like what would be my generation and then the younger generations <clears throat> that have been courageous enough and also had, you know, the freedom to actually kind of reestablish a kind of um, arising of, of their culture. But so Mari Boyne, you know, came from this previous generation where she was not raised where being Sami was a wonderful thing. And, um, you know, her story is great. She ended up, you know, having kind of, I think, a spiritual sort of calling to start singing. Um, and there's a lot of shamanic and um, sort of material woven into her songs. Um, and just, you know, my own personal experience of this particular song um, was I went to uh, Tromso a couple of years ago, one of my trips to the Arctic. Tromso is the northernmost town in Norway or like the northernmost big city, even though it's hardly a big city. Um, and it was February 6th, which is uh, Sami National Day, and there's this huge festival happening in the city. And um, we went into their big hall, and there was a sort of elementary school on stage, and all of the young Sami kids, probably 10 years and younger, and they're all wearing their gokhtis, and they're all just like bright-faced and adorable. And they were singing this particular song. And it was just so amazing to be able to see the influence that Mari Boyne has had on a sort of rejuvenation of Sami culture, but also just what music is for that culture. And so, you know, if you can listen to this song and then also imagine like a ton of eight-year-olds singing it, kind of broken, but so beautiful. It was the sweetest, one of the sweetest moments I have had in the Arctic. So um, so the song is called uh, Gula Gula, um, which means here, here. Um, and the sort of opening stanza is, hear, hear, girl, boy, hear the cry of your forefathers ask, why you let the earth become polluted, poisoned, exhausted. Hear the voices, girl, boy, hear the voices of our foremothers. The earth is our mother. If we take her life, we die with her. And it goes on and on, but it's just so powerful <laughs> and so important to be able to kind of get this message out there. Um, so enjoy. Chapa 